I'm going to end this retreat with some closing advice. Though I've been telling you that this practice of open awareness is very practical, it can be used anywhere, anytime, whatever you're doing. And you don't really need to sit down formally to be able to practice. However, it's still important to establish regular formal practice. If possible, then you should try to allocate a time. For my personal preference, it's early in the morning. Because at the end of the day, you're either very tired, or you've got a lot of issues, all the things that you've accumulated throughout the day. And when you sit down, usually two things will happen. Either you fall asleep because you're too tired, or you're bombarded with a lot of thoughts. (laughs) My preference is to get up early in the morning. After you have a good rest, then get up early in the morning, and your mind is clear, and you can meditate. But, having said that, different people have got different bio-clock. For some people, they can never meditate in the morning. They are all very groggy and sleepy, and they can meditate at night. They can meditate after midnight, 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. They are very bright and alert. Depends on the individual. Best to allocate the time. Whichever time is suitable for you, best to allocate the time for formal practice. In a formal practice, especially if you start at the beginning of the day, you can start off with some sort of focused awareness practice like Nanapana or Arahang or Sukino. And then you should end it with open awareness so that it can help you to start the day. It's not such a good idea to start off with open awareness and end with focus awareness because focus awareness is not so useful in daily life. It's good to establish a regular formal practice depending on how much time you have. Ideally, one hour, if not half an hour. And actually, if you travel quite often, especially in public transport, like in Singapore, we travel a lot in the mass transport, that's the time also that you can practice meditation. You're sitting there for half an hour in the train or in the bus, then see what's happening in your mind. There's a time where you can see a lot of causes and conditions. Whenever your senses are impinged, usually visual objects, and all the judgments and comments and things will arise in your mind. And you look at all this as Anicca Tukanata, products of causes and conditions. And secondly, try to make a habit of daily mindfulness. If you have done some retreats where they emphasize on formal sitting practice or formal walking practice, you might find that it is not so applicable in your daily life. Because like someone was saying, if you have to walk so slowly, and you have to label everything, and you have to sit still, how are you going to practice in daily life? And your eyes are open. When you practice open awareness, actually there's no excuse, because you are not required to slow down. You are not required to close your eyes. You are not required to sit still, unless you want to train your mind to catch intentions. We can do it anytime. But as Eric pointed out, 
how to remember. I'll tell you more about how to remember later on. You can use modern technology to remind yourself. I wonder why Eric is having this problem of remembering because everybody has a handphone. You can always schedule a handphone to remind you every half an hour or every hour or so and you can even record your own voice and use that and ask yourself, are you mindful? Where's your mind? What are you doing? It is still very doable nowadays with modern technology. You can do it. And if you have to work in front of the computer, I always recommend this software, this freeware. One is called WorkRave for Microsoft. And then the other one is called Timeout for Mac OS. Both of these software are designed to help you pause while you are working. It has a default program. You can also customize your settings. Every, maybe about, depending on the default, whether every 10 minutes or 15 minutes, then the screen will freeze, your keyboard will freeze, and then the screen will either blank out or it becomes translucent and you can't work. It goes blank only for 12 seconds, 15 seconds. But when it goes blank, you think it's a long time <laughs> because you want to get back to your work. Just that 12 seconds and 15 seconds actually is good enough to bring you back to the present moment, to be aware of your surrounding, to take stock of your own mental response and reaction to the situation. It gives you a chance to step back and look at things objectively, what you're working at. And you can also be aware of your environment at that time. This is programmable. You can adjust the settings according to um, circumstances. There is also a setting whereby you can ignore. When this thing comes out, it will give you a warning. You say in five seconds, the screen will black out, your keyboard will freeze. And if you are doing something urgent, then you can ignore. But you can also tweak the settings to say that you cannot ignore. Because if you have no discipline, every time it comes out, you ignore, it defeats the whole purpose of the software. <laughs> So you disable to ignore when you don't have anything urgent. Only when you have something really urgent, then you go and enable that option of ignoring. Another good way of trying to maintain continual practice is by having group support. If you're doing by yourself, you could be a bit sloppy and lazy, especially even doing in your bedroom. Whenever I feel a bit drowsy, is there no point in wasting my time sitting here and getting drowsy? Take a nap and then you come out one hour to hour and then you go off for another appointment. <laughs> and also when you stay in the house to meditate, the energy in the house, because you've got so many things to do, you sit down for a while and then, oh, I forgot to do this, I forgot to do that, and you're running all over the place trying to get things done. <laughs> if you have a special venue where you can go, it's best that you go and join other people there. When you're in that venue, even if you remember something, you forgot something in your house, you can't go back to your house. You've got to wait until you finish the session before you go back. And also, everybody is sitting. Everybody is practicing. If you're lazy, also you cannot afford to just lie down. If you don't have enough self-discipline, then it's good to have group energy and group support. If you have a venue, then that's the best. If not, you have a virtual group support. You set up a chat group 
and then you all can try to share your experiences and inspire one another. I've taught you the bar test, and it's actually very useful, not only for spiritual application, but also for worldly application. And you have to tweak your values according to the role that you are playing. And remember, in order to apply the bar test, you have to catch your intentions. If you don't catch the intentions, how are you going to apply the bar test? The bar test is all about processing your intentions and whether you want to pursue them or you want to trash them. Like I said, it may seem quite a tedious task to go through the B-A-R-R, but most of the intentions that arise don't pass the first one. You don't have to worry about the others. And if they don't pass anyone, then you can jump to the last one and look at it in terms of Anicca to Anatta and causing conditions. How did this arise? And when you can see the cause and condition, this will give you a greater sense of not-self. Whether you decide to follow that intention or not, you can still use a spiritual last hour to look at it in terms of cause and condition. I pointed out the other day that if conceit arises, you could look at the cause and condition of how this arose, and it's not really you. It's all a product of causes and conditions. No one to be proud of. If it's something which is unwholesome, something which is censurable, then something blameworthy that has arisen that you have regretted. Also, you can look at it in terms of cause and condition and you don't blame yourself. It's all due to causes and conditions and the primary culprit is ignorance at that time. But remember, right effort. When you know it is unwholesome, then you should make an effort to abandon it, not to pursue it, not to continue it. I talked about the four hours of mindfulness, but I have not told you about the four hours of regret. You have also got the four hours of regret. First is that there is remorse, and you feel bad about something that you perceive to be wrong. Now, provided you have right view, and it's really wrong in the ultimate sense, Sometimes, whether right and wrong is relative according to circumstances. But if it is, in the ultimate sense, it is wrong in terms of unwholesomeness, you feel remorse. The next thing you should do is try to redress yourself, redeem yourself for that. If you insulted somebody, you offended somebody, you should try to make amends by saying sorry, apologizing, or getting a gift for that person or something appropriate for the situation. That's to redeem yourself, to redress the situation. The third R is to resolve. Resolve that such a thing will not repeat itself. You will not make the same mistake. And the last R is to refrain. Then in future, although you made the resolution, in future, if such circumstances arise again, then you must refrain from committing the same sort of transgression. These are the four hours of remorse, redeem, resolve, and finally refrain. And all this also can only happen if you have mindfulness. You have to look back at it and remember the four hours and how to apply them. 
Some people are a bit confused about how applicable stance restraint is for a lay person. When you come for a retreat, it's quite relatively easy to practice stance restraint because you are observing the eight precepts, no entertainment, and so forth. You stay in a closed environment. You are not exposed to all the billboards and advertisements in your screen and on the road and the malls and so forth. But once you get out of this retreat center, you go back to the world, you'll be bombarded by all these advertisements in various places, by the media. So how can a layperson ever practice sense restraint? Last night I talked about the noble full path and we talked about right thought. And the first one is renunciation. Renouncing sense desires. Not easy when you get back to your day life. If you get back to your day life and you still try to maintain the same standards that you had when you were a yogi, you're asking for trouble. There's going to be a lot of conflict. You must be realistic. And you adopt another set of values when you go back to your lay life. When you go back to your lay life, you're a lay person. By definition, a lay person is called one who enjoys the pleasures of the senses. That's your job. If not, you might as well renounce and become a monk <laughs> or a nun. I said that the practice of open awareness is applicable in your daily life. You might wonder, how is this possible? How can I go around with unfocused awareness when I'm crossing the street, when I'm driving, <laughs> when I'm going shopping? I can't do that, right? But you can do that when you go shopping in the mall. Not really window shopping, but you're going to look for an item that you want. So when you walk in the mall, then you practice unfocused open awareness. You just walk and don't see left and right what is being sold. You just get to the store, get what you want and go home. <laughs> then they will surely cut down your shopping expenses. Because I don't know why women have this tendency to buy a lot of things which they don't need. <laughs> of course, in general, women have this tendency to buy things that they don't need. They're always taken by this, this psychological thing. This is a sale, bargain. How many percent you get? They always think in terms of the bargain that they can get. Very useful application of unfocused open awareness when you want to go shopping for a particular item. Otherwise, most of the time, like Mokchen pointed out, you have to practice more focused open awareness. When it comes to your pet attachments, as I said, as laypersons, your job is to enjoy the pleasures of the senses. If you still want to walk the nobleful path, then you have to do so within the context of the role that you are playing as a layperson. If you still have a very strong desire to go and eat Penang Hokkien Mee, for example, well, as long as you don't break the five precepts, as long as you don't upset the harmony in the family, as long as you don't harm yourself in the sense of eating unhealthy food, especially if you're having some health issue, then go ahead. Go and satisfy your pet attachments. However, do so with mindfulness and full awareness. 
The Buddha himself said in one sutta that when he was still a bodhisattva, before he became enlightened, he practiced understanding according to what has occurred, the gratification of sense pleasures, the drawbacks of sense pleasures and the escape from sense pleasures. What is meant by the gratification of sense pleasures is when you have this desire to want to enjoy Penang Hokkien Mi. That is, when you gratify the desire, you go there and you eat your bowl and then you are happy and gratified. That's the gratification. What is the drawback? The drawback is that when you practice eating meditation, I ask you to find out how many percent of the time do you really enjoy your food? It's a very small percentage if you're really mindful. Eating is really a chore. When you're doing it mindfully, you go there, the enjoyment doesn't last very long. And then, to get there, in the heat of the day, you have to drive and then get caught in a traffic jam, go there and get your number, because if it's a very popular stall, you have to get your number, like you're going to the clinic to wait for your turn to see the doctor. And then you've got to wait there for one hour, and then finally you get a bowl, and then you have to go back in the heat, get caught in the traffic jam again. This is a drawback. This is just to give you one simple example. But if it's some object that is more substantial than that, suppose you want to buy a big house, you want to get a Mercedes instead of just being contented with your proton. You have to earn a lot of money to be able to get that. In order to earn a lot of money, then you have to start a new project, you have to find ways and means of earning money. And going through all this trouble just to satisfy that desire. And then when the time you get it, you finish paying off your loan, new model has arrived. You buy a new Samsung 9, so great, about a year ago, now 10 is coming. These advertisers are always doing that, <laughs> playing on your weaknesses of wanting something new. You have to work hard for it to get that, and that's a drawback. And the enjoyment, the satisfaction, the gratification is just fleeting. You do that with mindfulness and you see that again and again. And then one day you find out it's enough. No need to go through all this trouble for that few moments of happiness. But what do you do? What is the escape? The escape is to discipline desire. When this desire arises, you look at the past experience and how much trouble they have get through in order to gratify this desire. When you see that, then you can discipline the desire. Enough. No need. Be content with what you have. This is how you deal with pet attachments. You can gratify them as long as you don't break your precepts, don't cause disharmony, don't cause harm to yourself or the others. But make sure that you do so with mindfulness and clear awareness. Two nights ago, I also talked about contemplation of the diets where the first diet was actually the Four Noble Truths. And last night also I said that the Buddha said when the first Noble Truth is to be fully understood and comprehended, which means to say, don't run away from suffering. If you suffer, confront the suffering. Look at how you suffer physically, emotionally, and try to understand its causes and conditions. But in order to confront suffering, 
effectively, you need to have mindfulness and clear awareness. And like I said last night, the succession of suffering can be achieved by following the way leading to it, which is a noble, evil path. If you really want to confront suffering effectively, you need to follow the noble, evil path as much as you can. That part about renunciation is a bit difficult for laypersons. But like I said, if you can do so within the limits of your capability, then at least it is still possible. There are various levels of suffering. And each type of suffering has got its own causes and conditions. But basically, most of the mental sufferings, if not all, are caused by desire, attachment, clinging. Not just desire for pleasures of the senses, but even more dangerous than that is attachment to views, expectations, beliefs. Because of this attachment of clinging to views, beliefs and opinions, that countries go to war. People fight because of hanging on to views, to ideologies, to beliefs. That's even more dangerous, more devastating than just you know, having the desire for sensual pleasures. Be careful. See that most of your sufferings are caused by your attachments to your ideas, to expectations, beliefs and opinions. Whenever you suffer, ask yourself why. Then as you inquire and you see again and again and then you will you will know how to let go of your attachments. Quite a lot of people here were asking about enlightenment and whether practicing open awareness can lead to enlightenment, whether listening to Dhamma talk can lead to enlightenment. Don't be too concerned about enlightenment. Usually I don't talk about enlightenment, I don't talk about various stages of insights in my Dharma talks. I think that is secondary. That will come of itself. You need to do the work. You need to satisfy the causes and conditions and then this will arise. The true markers of progress in your spiritual path are first, decrease in unwholesomeness. That means your less defilements. The frequency and the intensity of your defilements should lessen. And there should be an increase in wholesomeness, which means to say that wholesome mental states like generosity, forgiveness, understanding, letting go, all these should increase. Your character should also become better. Your relationship with people should be smoother. You should have less conflicts within yourself and with the world. This comes about actually very naturally when you can see causality. You can see cause and condition. When you can realize that all the things that happen in your mind all your thoughts, feelings, perceptions, all your judgments, comments, your habits, are all products of causes and conditions. Then you learn to forgive yourself. And also you learn to forgive others. You have empathy, acceptance and forgiveness. That's why Saru Tejaniya 
doesn't teach metta meditation. He only teaches this to see all these causes and conditions within yourself and understand. He says that when you really understand, then the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abidings, will arise of themselves according to circumstances. Which means to say, when circumstances require, you will have metta or loving kindness, or you will have karuna or compassion, or you will have sympathetic joy, or you will have equanimity, depending on circumstances. But here, I teach you metta meditation as a guardian meditation by reciting Sukino and trying to evoke the sense of metta. I'm doing this because I don't know when you will ever get to this stage of seeing cause and condition to the extent that you will be able to have spontaneous metta. For some people, they have been here for quite a number of times and only now they manage to see cause and condition. <laughs> In the meantime, before you can see cause and condition, what if you have some frightening encounter with spirits or with animals? What are you going to do? Before we get these spontaneous divine abidings, that's why I teach you this metta. Do it first. And when you can really see cause and condition clearly within yourself, then this becomes more genuine and more spontaneous. The fruits of practice, like some of you have shared, is that it will improve your life. There will be drastic reduction of mind-rooted suffering because you learn not to cling. You learn not to hold on to unrealistic expectations. I'm not asking you to do away with the expectations because it's impossible to do away with them if you want to live a normal life. You still need to have expectations, but don't have unrealistic expectations. And even if you have realistic expectations, you never know things might turn out otherwise because there are many things beyond our control. When you reduce your desires because you know that desire is a cause of suffering, then you will have more contentment and happiness. After all, what is happiness? Happiness is being contented with what is. When you're meditating and you're getting bored, it means you're not happy. Why are you bored? Because you're not contented with what is happening. You want something else other than what is happening. Boredom is another form of suffering and is rooted in desire, wanting something else other than what is happening. Another side effect of progress in meditation in your spiritual path is that you become less social and more introverted. You could say more essentialistic, minimalist. You begin to see that when you practice this bar test often, you begin to see that you don't want to socialize with people who are not Dharma practitioners anymore because they talk about things which don't matter. They don't pass the bar test. And you find that it's very empty to go and socialize and go and talk about frivolous things over a cup of coffee. You prefer to be alone and watch your own mind, understand things, understand causality, or just being with what is happening around you. Then you become more introverted because you are less social. And also because you find that desire is a cause of suffering, and you have really learned how to discipline your desire, 
then you become more minimalist. You don't go and get and buy things which you don't need. These are actually natural consequences of improvement in your spiritual practice. Don't think that there's nothing wrong with you. Although the people around you who are non-practitioners will think that you're going crazy. You're going fanatical. You're becoming a meditation freak. Yeah, People will say that, especially if they don't meditate. But this is a natural thing. And you have to learn how to adapt yourself to your circumstances according to your lifestyle. There was one yogi who got involved in meditation. She was so intense in it. She was doing this sort of focus awareness practice. And she would go from one retreat after another retreat. And she became so introverted at home that her family started to accuse her of going crazy and getting too fanatical about spiritual practice. In my retreats, I always teach not only Vipassana, but also Metta, because you need these two. Supposing you get very deep in your practice and you find that you really become weary of the world. You see so much cause and conditioning so continuously. You see that you are the victim of causes and conditions, that desire is the cause of all suffering. Then you sort of lose interest in all your worldly pursuits. And you want to renounce. But you have a family. You have responsibilities. You have loans to pay. You cannot just simply put everything aside and then go and renounce and enjoy yourself. You can't do that. That's why you need to have metta. You need to have compassion and loving kindness to fulfill the responsibilities and the obligations that you yourself have created due to ignorance in the past. This is a coming debt that you have to pay. But don't pay grudgingly. Pay with loving kindness and compassion and do so with mindfulness and clear awareness. While you're fulfilling all the obligations, you can still look at causes and conditions, look at Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, and eventually you might even get enlightened while you are still a lay person. Just like Gatikara became an Anagami and still taking care of his blind parents. An interesting thing about Gatikara is that he was a potter. Even though he was still a layman, he lived like a monk. He never accepted money. And he never dug the earth to get his soil to make his pottery. <laughs> Very interesting. Somehow he had creative ways, like for example, he would go and look for animals that burrow, and he would collect the soil that they have burrowed out. They are not digging into the earth. And that's to make his pottery. And he would not accept money, he would not engage in buying and selling, he would just put his pots there and people would come and take the pots and then butter some provisions there for him. Some years ago when I went to New Zealand with our chairman, they invited me to New Zealand and we were driving to cross country. We went to some farms, some orchards. There's nobody there, but all the products are on the table. There's a notice there. Please take what you want and leave the money on the table. The people in New Zealand, they are so honest that they don't steal because it's a land of abundance and low population. <laughs> so they don't need to strive to get all these things. It's interesting how Gatikara lived. He was a Nagami and although he had family responsibilities, he lived his life like a monk. I think I shall end the retreat here. And let's all share Mary's. First, before you take your precepts and go off, right? <laughs>